What It Takes is brought to you by our exclusive sponsor, Google Nest. Google Nest is helping people decarbonize their lives with Nest Renew. Nest Renew is a new service that leverages the Nest thermostat to help people use cheaper, cleaner energy at times when more carbon-free sources are available on the grid. Our ability to really reach a lot of people to make an impact, I think, is, you know, is kind of the, the holy grail of, of clean tech, right? Because as we say at Nest Renew, if we all do a little bit, it can add up to a lot. That promise is really exciting. That's Gisela Glant, a partnership lead for Google Nest. Later in the show, Gisela describes why partnerships with utilities and energy service providers make Nest Renew so valuable for unlocking the growth of clean energy. To learn more about Nest Renew, visit nestrenew.google.com or click the link in the show notes. I'm Emily Kirsch, founder and CEO of Powerhouse and managing partner of Powerhouse Ventures. This is What It Takes, a show about the entrepreneurs making our climate-positive future a reality. Over the last decade, solar has grown faster than almost anyone thought possible. Last year in 2021, the U.S. added a record 13 gigawatts of utility-scale solar to the grid. And despite supply chain disruptions and inflation, the average solar panel cost still dropped by 11%. It's never been a better time for the industry. In fact, new solar plants are actually cheaper to build than new gas or coal-fired power plants. But according to the Department of Energy, for the country to achieve a zero-carbon grid by 2050, we'll need 1,600 gigawatts of solar compared to the 13 gigawatts we added last year. To meet the power demands of the coming decades, solar will have to break through its current single-digit share on the grid. And doing that means drastically rethinking the way developers, owners, and operators keep tabs on new and existing solar projects. And that's exactly what today's guest, Nikhil Vadhavkar, CEO and co-founder of Raptor Maps, is doing. Our mission is to build software to enable the solar industry to scale. If you look today at um, you know any kind of any industry that is able to operate efficiently and and you know have automation uh, has really a backbone. So in the financial industry, it's it's the ledger. Uh, when it comes to you know the web, it's it's things like AWS, things like that. And solar doesn't have any of that. Raptor Maps is delivering the software needed for utility-scale solar owners and operators to build, monitor, maintain, and expand their solar plants. Before Raptor Maps, each solar farm operated in its own silo, essentially disconnected from other solar plants. I got to use a, a winter analogy growing up in Michigan, but every single solar farm is like its own snowflake. You've got custom <laughs> paperwork. It's its own company. You've got a lot of accountants and lawyers and, you know, different parties and contract structures. It was all analog. Installations and inspections were tracked on paper or in Excel. Reports and equipment records were emailed as spreadsheets and PDFs. It worked for a while, and the industry still kept growing. But like any industry, a lack of standardized systems means a lack of efficiency. And with expected revenues of $100,000 per megawatt per year, even small losses in production can mean a significant loss in revenue. We're at that point where... You know, every solar farm, every gigawatt is is a billion dollars of solar assets. And when you have that much capital at stake, being able to be standardized, efficient, transparent, auditable, all of that, and, and have an ecosystem to plug into 
really starts to matter. Their solution? A sophisticated piece of software that uses aerial data from drones to create a digital twin, a detailed recreation of a solar plant. As a customer's drone flies over their solar farm, the cameras and sensors gather data that Raptor Map software then uses to make a digital model. And it's not just a bird's eye view. Every digital twin has crucial information for owners and operators. They can see how well modules in an array are performing, what anomalies might be present, and keep track of modules that might need replacing. So, for example, when we have customers that are you know, validating that you have solar panels that you need to replace, not only can they go and look at that original data, but we give them a way to write a quick script to automatically query that as well and check for, you know, all of the, check whether or not, you know, the data was taken according to best practices and things like that. On the ground, customers can scan modules to verify supply chain information and manage warranty claims. Raptor Maps is positioning itself as the system of record for the solar industry, and they enable their customers to track and exchange data on an engaging platform trusted by all parties. Without Raptor Maps, there's no trust between parties. But within solar, we want to build more trust um, between counterparties, for example. And so, and the way to do that is through software and standardization. Raptor Maps has become the go-to solar lifecycle management solution from a solar project start all the way through end of life. To date, they've analyzed more than 75 gigawatts of solar in 45 countries since Nikhil and his team started in 2015. Where the industry is at today, you know, these processes are already breaking and we're only in single-digit percentages when it comes to the penetration of solar relative to the total uh, power production. And so if Raptor Maps doesn't exist, we're not going to deploy enough solar to reach our climate goals. I spoke to Nikhil about what it takes to bring new innovation to the now well-established solar industry. We also talked about Raptor Maps' early transition from potato farms to solar farms and the work it took to build their reputation as an industry standard. We started with Nikhil's childhood in Michigan as the son of Indian immigrants who made learning about the world a regular part of their routine. So excited to have you here. I wanted to check this with you. I think the first time we met was at the Green Tech Media Solar Software Summit, and you were participating in a pitch competition that I was moderating. And if I remember correctly, you won first place. Is this all sounding right? That is absolutely correct. Yeah, it's uh, it's interesting that solar is just at the point now where you know we had a, an actual software summit, and that, that was a <laughs> yeah, it was a pretty exciting. It was on the heels of kind of a a two day conference just on solar in general. Yeah, and then I, I remember I gave you a hard time because you were wearing a tie, which I found endearing and worthy of making fun of you for. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, that's uh, you know when you're based out of Boston, you gotta gotta look the part, right? <laughs> well, you did. Um, and uh, that was the first time that we met. And we, through Powerhouse Ventures, ended up investing in Raptor Maps and joining you all as an early investor. So listeners will hear my bias come through throughout the episode. And that's fine with me. Starting with your early life, you grew up in Michigan with your mom, dad, and brother. Your parents both immigrated to the U.S. from India. Tell me about your parents and how they shaped who you are. Yeah, so... When my mom came to the U.S., um, she really was the maverick of her family. Most of her family stayed in India, and she came over, you know, as a as a single woman, as a reporter for the Times of India, uh, a foreign correspondent, and really made it in, in Queens. And if you imagine kind of what it was like to be in New York City in the '80s, and just you know, having just kind of came to this country, you can 
you can imagine how scrappy you need to be to do that. Um, so, you know, that that was a huge influence for me. And and when she met my dad, he had been in the country for a few years. And, you know, most people don't think of uh, West Virginia, somewhere where uh, someone coming from India would immigrate from. But uh, that's where he wound up uh, when he was in high school, um, got really into mechanical engineering and the auto industry. And so, um, yeah, he ended up going to school in Oklahoma, and then they eventually settled down in in Michigan. So, you know, very interesting backgrounds. I think they saw they both saw a lot of a lot of the world and a lot of uh, a lot of the U.S. And I think that gave them a lot of perspective when it came to raising me and my brother. I know education and the pursuit of knowledge was really big in your household. And I know your family were big fans of Jeopardy. Tell me more about your childhood and specifically what were you like and what were you into as a kid? Yeah. So you mentioned Jeopardy and, you know, this was before the days of of Netflix and all that, right? So it was uh, it, it was part of the routine, like, all right, you know, dinner's cooking, this is coming on. And, you know, we watched it uh, religiously. And I absolutely, um, you know, it's kind of unfair. I used to compete with my brother, but he's five years younger than me. So <laughs> I, I, naturally, I had a, a little bit better uh, knowledge of the world. But um, no, it was, uh, knowledge was a huge part of our household, everything from that even, and even going back, um, I used to be really into things like, you know, Legos and Meccano sets and, you know, all, just tinkering in general. So, yeah. So as a kid, I was really into, you know, anything that had to do with, you know, engineering, physics, science. Um, you know, I was I was that kid that would be, you know, grinding rocks or trying to, trying to cut geodes open or looking at things under, you know, a super cheap microscope. Um, and you know, these were the days before like Minecraft, but you had things like, you know, roller coaster tycoon and civilization, or if, you know, some of you may even remember things like Microsoft Bob. So, you know, there's, um, you know, really into any of those games where you could try to kind of build and create. Um, yeah, uh, I was, I was all about that. Mm. What drew you to engineering? For me, it was two things. One is, you know, we all can think back on just fantastic teachers that we've had in our lives. And I was incredibly fortunate to have very strong teachers growing up in in both, you know, math and physics. And and that enabled me. I, I loved, I, I hate rote memorization. So, you know, if you think about, you know, your best qualities or your worst qualities, I think, you know, just sheer memorization is probably not my best quality. And engineering was, it was like these superpowers where if you understood the fundamentals and the math behind something, you could always get or deduce your way to to the right answer. And so that really appealed to me. So with that love of engineering in 2006, you went to John Hopkins and studied biomedical engineering to help people while also getting a grasp on a wide range of engineering disciplines. And then you stayed at John Hopkins for a master's in engineering management uh, in 2009. What were you working on at the time and what was your experience like with both of those programs? Yes, yeah, so I went to Hopkins because I couldn't figure out. I knew I wanted to to have an engineering background, but I couldn't figure out whether or not I I wanted to eventually go to to medical school. So I figured, you know, that was the best of both worlds, and I really got to um, you know experience what it was like in hospitals and clinics and, and in surgical suites from an engineering perspective. And one of the things that um, I wound up doing was leading a design team where we would spend a lot of time shadowing surgeons and other um, specialists and figuring out, 
you know, seeing firsthand what were some of the gaps in medical treatment and then figuring out, you know, what can we build and prototype and even test um, that's really going to advance um, advanced medical care. And so that was probably my first taste of real entrepreneurship was um, building these medical devices. And uh, I got really excited about not just the devices themselves, but everything that came along with what it took to get something like that to market. And then after graduating in 2010, you spent a year working for Accenture in their federal services division. What did you learn from your time there? Yeah, so I uh, I graduated and my my wife had a year left at the time. Well, she wasn't my wife at the time, but so I, I knew I wanted to stay pretty close to Baltimore and had this fantastic opportunity um, to work exactly as you said at, at Accenture. And one of the things I, I learned um, is that especially when we look at tech startups, you know, people consider consulting as as something that's that's not scalable, right? It's like you go in, you're you know, and and you have to learn everything brand new, and then you're implementing things literally based on what what the customer tells you. But at Accenture, I realized that what had made that company and a lot of companies like it so successful is they had taken that model and actually figured out a way to make it scalable. They had partnered with technology companies. And so, you know, from the inside looking out, it was easy to see what kind of, you know, when you think of your large consulting companies, what makes them special and what makes them actually pretty good businesses. So then after Accenture in 2011, you began your PhD in bioastronautics at MIT. I had not heard of bioastronautics. Tell me more. <laughs> Most people haven't. There's only uh, there's only one student that's ex- accepted into that program uh, every single year. And this is really a combination of biomedical engineering and human spaceflight um, and what it actually takes to not only keep humans alive in space, but enable them to thrive and actually get the mission done. And so um, my PhD project uh, that I was working towards was the life support system for a, uh, a Mars spacesuit. So believe it or not, you know, everyone's seen, you know, the spacesuits that, um, you know, both the SpaceX astronauts wear as well as, you know, NASA astronauts and w- what it looks like when you're, you know, floating around outside of the, uh, the space station. None of those concepts actually cut it on Mars. And so it was a really fascinating problem to simulate all of the different conditions and figure out, you know, how we could actually sustain human life there. And so that's when you met your eventual co-founder in Raptor Maps, Eddie. Tell me about meeting him. Yeah, Eddie is... Yeah, how do you describe Eddie? He, most people think he's from California. He's just, he's super chill. He, he talks like a surfer. He's actually from uh, the very, as far south in New Jersey as you can go. So the the shore, so other coast. But but I think what makes Eddie so special is like, he's technically just extremely brilliant, but also just very laid back, gets along with everyone and also has a real entrepreneurial streak. And so when I met him, you know, what fascinated me about Eddie wasn't the fact that he was writing software for, you know, the, you know, for the the Navy and, and looking at, you know, different dive suit concepts or the fact that he was, he, he had worked at SpaceX. It was, it was the fact that he actually started a surf shop on the Jersey shore and, you know, grew that into a successful business. And I was like, that's a really interesting, you know, mix of, of skills. Um, like, tell me more. Mm. <laughs> so, mm. yeah. <laughs> so at some point you decide to stop working on 
suits for Mars and you decide to focus on things on Earth, how did you come to make that pivot, given that you were so involved in this really exciting and interesting project? Yeah, so one of the things about the work that we were doing is that, you know, it's really focused, especially if you look at Mars, there's this idea of, you know, we have to become an interplanetary species because the Earth is in trouble. And you'll, you know, this is what you know, some people like Elon, for example, will say. But I think that, I think we do need to become an interplanetary species, but that's not the reason why. Um, you know, we have this, this home that is perfectly suited to human life, that we have some very urgent issues that before, you know, way before we put a human on Mars, we have to solve these issues at home today. And, and these things are happening a, a lot faster. You're talking, you know, the months and years timescale. And so the ability to affect change on our home planet you know, at that time, at the time scale that we need it, that's something that we felt was extremely critical and important and really matched the pace at, at which we wanted to innovate. And so, you know, that's where, you know, if you think about, you know, a PhD and a startup, those are two pretty opposite ends of the spectrum. And um, <laughs> and we were really fortunate to have a, a fantastic advisor, Dr. David Newman, who is also extremely passionate about, about our planet. You know, she sailed around the world and, you know, she saw what we were trying to do and and really encouraged us to go for it. Mm. And so where did the original idea for Raptor Maps come from? And how did you decide to take the leap to start the company in 2015? So originally, um, I had built up uh, some knowledge on, you know, IoT devices and remote sensing and kind of some new technologies like drone technology through a grant from the Gates Foundation, where we actually, uh, myself and a, a team, we were exploring how to use things like drones to deliver medical supplies to um, very remote areas in developing nations where they didn't have a lot of good infrastructure. And so, you know, it was very clear at the time, you know, this was around 2014, 2015, you had, you know, the rise of, you know, these new types of systems and sensors and, and things like that. Um, and just like better robotics, I would say. Um, that was combined with innovations in um, machine learning and then obviously cloud computing. And if you look at where that is today, you know, that that's something that that's been a huge enabler. So those three things together, you know, we were thinking about, well, how can you deploy that to maximize the the impact you can have on the climate? And actually, we looked at a lot of different things, everything from fertilizer runoff to reducing, you know, water consumption um, to things like critical infrastructure assessments. And so uh, initially we started, believe it or not, in the, in the agriculture space. You know, if you're looking to make a big impact, it doesn't get much bigger than, um, you know, uh, what we use a huge amount of our land for, which is agriculture, right? Trillion dollar industry and tremendous amounts. If you look at, you know, every single acre, what it takes, um, both in terms of uh, fertilizers and pesticides and things like that, but also water, it's incredible. And so what we noticed was that, you know, there wasn't any sort of kind of underlying digital twin for these farms um, in which you could actually, in a structured way, model these inputs and then use machine learning to optimize the outputs, literally the yield, how much food are you getting while minimizing, um, you know, how much water and fertilizer you were putting out. And so, um, yeah, we initially started with 
the potato industry. Uh, you know, our, our tagline was was Palantir for potatoes. And, you know, people may ask, you know, why, <laughs> why is that? Um, but if you look at it, you've got this incredibly sensitive crop. Um, it takes a lot more resources than, you know, corn, soybean, and wheat. And if you're questioning how big the industry is, next time you're driving down the road, look at, you know, your McDonald's, your Wendy's, your Burger King. And, you know, that's that's half the market right there. And so you and Eddie won $100,000 at the 25th annual MIT entrepreneurship competition. And that was first place. And that was the initial capital into the company. Is that correct? Yeah, that's correct. We, um, you know, it's it's open to the entire MIT ecosystem, right? Including, um, you know, Sloan MBA students and and many others. And so we were particularly proud, right, when you have engineers um, that, you know, I think what really set us apart was was the hustle that we had shown, and that you know we were we had spoken to most of the major like potato farmers. We had spoken with processing plants. We had spoken with you know fertilizer companies, and I think we had built this incredible understanding of the space as well as a really good prototype to be able to demonstrate how passionate we were about our vision and demonstrate our tenacity. And that I think that that really came through. Mm-hmm. And so, had you already formed the company at that point when you won the prize? No, the the company. Um, yeah, it's funny. So you you know you, you get this prize money, and then you're like, it's in the name of Raptor Maps, and you're like, well, shoot, that's not my name or your name. Uh, guess we better <laughs> we need some entity to deposit this thing. A <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Also, I've never asked why Raptor Maps. Yeah, we. Uh, so if you think about a raptor, um, you know, it's a it's a bird of prey. It's it's looking down. Um, you know, it, we thought that was really cool and symbolic of what we wanted to do. But uh, most importantly, the domain name was available. <laughs> <laughs> that is that is important. Um, so in 2016, so a year later, you and Eddie applied to Y Combinator, and you were accepted, and you got to spend time with mentors and really hone in on the company's mission, which was still ag-focused at the time. What was your experience like at Y Combinator? Yeah, so you know, people think about um, in the early days of a startup, you talk about you know move fast and break things and and all of that, but really, it's it's having not just the freedom to fail, but also being pushed to fail very quickly. And what I mean by that is that, you know, you're working with some of the, you know, some of the best operators in the world, right? People that really know what it's like to start a company um, and and have been both successful and not successful at it and have seen a lot of stuff along the way. And I think the biggest lesson for us um, is that, you know, when we when we were in a group with some of our fellow entrepreneurs and really discussing, you know, what's going well and what, what are some of the challenges, if you came back a week later, two weeks later with the same problem, you know, that meant that you hadn't really spent that those precious last few days, um, you know, getting at the core of what it was. And so I think it really, to us, underscored that there was just a next level of pace that you could be working at when it when it comes to a, a startup. And that's something that we really um, emphasize, even within our own team today. It's like we really haven't lost that, you know, that hustle. And so then you started getting calls from not potato farmers, but solar farm operators. <laughs> Tell me about that. And how did that shift from potatoes to solar come about? Yeah, so one thing that you know, seems obvious, but it, you don't appreciate until uh, it's happening to you is, 
you know, you're not doing a lot of farming during the winter. <laughs> and you would think, in, you know, farmers are, you know, they're incredibly sophisticated in terms of the amount of technology that they're they're using and, you know, some of the best business people. Um, but they also want to, you know, that's that's their summer break, too. So, um, so that's, mm-hmm. a, you know, if you're looking at it from kind of a revenue and a new booking standpoint, we said, well, shoot, we need to, we need to get ourselves through these lean months here. And so we had built up a lot of skill in creating a digital twin of these, these geospatial assets, right? We were representing, for example, the different rows and how far apart were these plants spaced and all of these different, uh, all these different variables. And we had also built up a pretty unique capability to analyze um, thermal, radiometric thermal data as one of the many data sources. And so we we started advertising just that on our website. Just we thought that could have application, maybe a little bit beyond farming. And we started getting calls and emails from professionals in the solar industry saying, "Hey, I know you guys are working on like potatoes and agriculture, but I think I'm running into some pretty major problems, and I think you guys are on the right track." And that was, I would say, that really the first light bulb moment for for Raptor Maps. Hmm. And then how did you go from those calls to getting some early customers in the solar space? We tried to understand why people were calling us and they said, well, you know, we've, we're, we're buying new types of technology, new sensors. So, hey, I bought this thermal camera, you know, it's attached to a drone. I, I paid, you know, I, yeah, I, I went and I got my company to sponsor my, my drone pilot's license. And now I'm, I'm flying around <laughs> all, all over my solar farms and I'm seeing some cool stuff. I think it can save me time, but... You know, can you come help me help me out? Like, I, I don't even know. Like, I don't have a flight plan. I don't have anyone to analyze this data. But, but I know there's something there. And so, anytime people go through that much pain, it means they have a real problem that they're trying to solve. And you can listen to them on the phone all day long, or you can just buy a plane ticket and go hang out with them in a solar farm, <laughs> watch what they're trying to do, and understand that. And that's exactly what we did. Uh, and so, mm. some of the Best memories I have at Raptor Maps are just spending, you know, long, really hot days out in five, ten, hundred megawatt solar farms, watching what these people are trying to do on a day-to-day basis. Um, and really, that is the light bulb moment for like when we talk about this, you know, underlying system of record and technology and enabling solar scale. That's when we realized, you know, wow, like there's a huge need in the industry, and if we don't solve this, this is going to be a really big problem. And what were they trying to do that they couldn't quite do on their own that you realized could be done with Raptor Maps? Yes. So as the solar industry grew, um, owners and operators were uh, kind of between a rock and a hard place where you have these bigger assets, um, you know, they're they're distributed in more states and kind of more far-flung regions, right? Some of that low-hanging fruit has been, as you you well know, right, um, has been picked. Um, And at the same time, there's constant pressure to increase the top line revenue and reduce the operating expenses because it's one thing to see, okay, this is theoretically what a solar farm can produce, but if it's not actually producing that, that's a big problem. And that's actually a pervasive problem in the industry. So you got less, you know, less manpower and a higher bar. Uh, and that <laughs> that's where people were uh, were experimenting with technology because they said we have to be able to solve this, otherwise. You know, the, the entire model for what we're doing is is at risk. 
So you mentioned Raptor Maps utilizing drone technology and your own software to build these digital twins, which are basically detailed models of these solar farms that can then be used to keep track of maintenance records and module efficiency and a bunch of other functions. Tell me about developing the technology itself. Like you had done so much of that for ag. How much of it was transferable? How much of it did you have to customize for the solar industry after you made that pivot? Yeah, so the concept of creating a digital twin on a complex geospatial asset, you know, we had already thought a lot of that through. And so it's it's interesting because if, you know, a lot of our software engineers will will know this, but, you know, one of our core tools we call Farm Builder, um, it's actually originally named Farm Builder for literal farms, not solar farms. And we, mm. but um, you're like, oh, this works. You know, so there's certainly, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you know, that, that works, um, you know, uh, it's, it's deep in the code base, but it's there. But other things, absolutely, we had to develop, you know, you've got different types of technology, right? Thin film versus um, poly and monocrystalline, and you've got different relationships, um, you know, how are things wired up and and even different um, different contract structures, right? So when you really are modeling out, you know, financial return, that's different for different PV systems. Um, and so, you know, we really had to think through all that. But I think what, you know, what really kept us going was, you know, we had initially, people know us or they initially knew us for doing, you know, providing this aerial inspection analytics, and that's still an important part of what we do. But initially, we thought that we would serve this on the system record. It would be like, hey, if I want to make a transaction, you know, if I were to send you money, um, you know, through PayPal or something, there's like a ledger there and there's a way for me to do that. Um, and and that kind of like just underlying system uh, uh, to be able to deliver that critical insight, as well as pull the information that we needed, none of that existed. So, you know, we really had to develop, think through from first principles, both for solar farms that were had yet to be built, as well as solar farms that were are already in operation today. How do we create that model? Um, and really, that's uh, we made some fantastic architectural decisions early in the company that are paying huge dividends today because we always, always had that vision. Coming up, Nikhil and Raptor Map secure their first solar customers, including some of the biggest names in the solar industry. But first, a word from our exclusive sponsor of this season of What It Takes, Google Nest. At the top of the show, we heard from Gisela Glant, who leads energy and technology partnerships for Nest Renew. What we're trying to do, though, is, is reach millions of users at Google scale. And so how do, we, how do we make sure that we can scale our reach in a way that really helps the product be successful? Nest Renew is a service for Nest thermostats that allows customers to shift heating and cooling electricity usage to times when the grid is cleaner. Nest Renew leverages the best-in-class technology. It also leverages partnerships with utilities and distributed energy companies around the country to achieve scale. And that's where Gisela comes in. We have very, very good, important working relationships with the utilities, and they are our partners to make these products successful. Those are all different kinds of partnerships, which makes the work really fun. Thanks to these partnerships, Nestrenew Premium can match the fossil fuel electricity used in a home with enough clean energy to cover the average U.S. household and do it in a highly engaging, personalized way. The ecosystem is changing so quickly, constantly, all the time. Uh, there's so much evolution of technology, of new uses of existing uh, services. And so that's the, that's the really great thing about Google, that we are strongly cross-functional. And that makes for kind of better product delivery. If you want to partner with Google Nest Renew to help unlock the growth of clean energy, visit nestrenew.google.com or click the link in the show notes. 
you were already generating revenue ahead of raising your seed round. Is that right? Yeah, that's correct. Tell me about your first customers. Yes. So one of our first customers was Solve Energy. They were almost a bit of a startup at the time because they they were really big on construction and they were really exploding on the scene with uh, operations and maintenance. And so it's been really exciting to grow with them. NL Green Power, Cypress Creek Renewables, Rosin and Electric. So, you know, we were really fortunate to, to get in there, prove ourselves and, you know, develop these relationships with, you know, what would ultimately be some of the, the rock stars in the solar industry. And then as we expanded, we started getting a lot of interest from, you know, the, the folks who are building solar farms, they call them EPCs, because, you know, they want to build a high quality product. They want to get paid faster. Um, they want to, sometimes they are the ones maintaining that. And so, Really, we realized that, you know, the relationships um, within the solar industry that we were actually capturing within our software, um, you know, our customer base was was really representing a lot of different players, not kind of just concentrated on one particular uh, segment of the solar industry. Hmm. Those are some big names to have so early in Raptor Maps life. Uh, those are some of the biggest names in the industry. How did you get them and how did you convince them to work with you as a pre-seed company? You hadn't <laughs> even raised your seed round yet. Well, we're really big believers in in show, don't tell, right? So I would much rather work intensively with a customer on a handful of their solar farms and really prove, you know, it's one thing for us to be able to talk about return on investment in kind of a general sense. It's another thing for someone to see it on their own assets. To I mean, that's just visceral, right? And that also lays the ground. It, it just builds trust. And so that's how we were able to do it in the early days is that we were very concrete about what we were promising. You know, we didn't, if we couldn't do something or that wasn't on, on our immediate roadmap, we were very clear about that. We delivered on what we said we would. And so um, yeah, I think that's where um, that's how we were really able to to get that early traction. So that traction led to you being able to raise a seed round in June of 2019, a 1.7 million round led by our friends at Blue Bear Capital with participation from more friends at Congruent Ventures and then yours truly at Powerhouse Ventures. How was it raising the seed round? Well, raising a seed round is um, yeah, it's I mean any raising money in general is challenging but super exciting because you know founders go out there and and I would say this is something that I learned too is you know you kind of refine you know the story you make it as clear as possible you have your metrics but what you don't realize is that those interactions with folks particularly investors you know like yourself and and the others that you mentioned that have some understanding and experience in the industry they can actually really help you shape that narrative and even sometimes reframe and clarify, um, you know, what you're trying to do. And so, you know, I thought that was really exciting where, you know, we kind of went out, if you look at, you know, what that deck looked like, maybe, you know, a few weeks later versus what, you know, kind of where it started, it's almost, almost night and day. So, uh, but at the end of the day, I think, you know, what investors were seeing was that, you know, if it's solar and kind of, you're, you know, you're moving, instead of moving, you know, oil or fossil fuels, you're, you're moving electrons, right? And so, you know, in the early days of those industries, you didn't even have computing and you didn't have these systems of record and digital twins and all that. And, and so, you know, if you did have that and you had that system in place that early on, you know, how much more efficient could that be? And, you know, how anyone who wants to plug into that ecosystem has a way to do that. And so I think really that vision 
that was the most important thing was uh, us being able to share that. But most and our uh, investors getting really excited and then by that and being aligned with that. Mm-hmm. What did the seed round enable you to do in terms of the team, the technology development, the customer base? Yeah. So before the seed round, um, basically every kind of you know, deliverable that was going out the door, right? Every kind of assessment of a solar farm that was getting delivered through this, um, you know, at the time, pretty rudimentary digital twin. I was literally looking at that or like I, you know, I had, a, had a hand in that, you know, so that was the level of, let's call it shoestring that we were operating at. And so this really enabled us to find some some awesome people that, you know, not just shared our vision, but we knew would um, really be with the company for the long term and, and contribute and, um and so, you know, first and foremost, uh, there was that. Second, it gave us the ability to make investments um, that wouldn't directly, you know, precede. It's like you're not going to do anything unless it's going to bring you a dollar tomorrow, <laughs> like literally tomorrow. Mm-hmm. Whereas now, you know, like I said, we did have a really good conception of, well, what is what's the 2.0 version of that digital twin need to look like? And we could actually allocate some resource to building that. And really start expanding the capabilities so that, you know, instead of this kind of point in time assessment on an annual basis, we were driving towards more data sources and more continuous engagement and increasing value for for our customers. Mm-hmm. And in terms of that increased value, what does that look like? Is that primarily revenue based on what projects can deliver based on using Raptor Maps or what are the other, what's the other value that your customers are getting out of the product? Yeah, so at the end of the day, um, you know, these every single solar farm or portfolio of solar farms has to be a financially viable investment, right? Because you are, especially when you think about the scale of solar, you know, you are attracting capital that and the amounts of capital that people might say, well, if I put it somewhere else, I could get this type of return. And so, you know, it is, it's not existing in a vacuum. And the reason it's important to look at it through that lens is because then you look at every single solar farm through the rate of return. And there's a theoretical rate of return when you're designing it, but then there's what are you actually getting? And so the way we think about return on investment is, can we get more power out of the solar farm? Remember, it's you know every, they're operating for twenty five years or more. Um, you know you're you're looking at you know a hundred thousand dollars per megawatt in revenue per year, right? So these are these are pretty big amounts. Um, we look at the operating expense. Um, you know, if you you know a dollar saved today, or or just being more efficient with that, that really compounds. And then very importantly, we look at risk and, you know, how do we mitigate risk for our customers? A great, you know, one of the things we're doing, for example, is we, um, one of the largest solar panel manufacturers in the world, we're actually structuring the warranty claims for our customers and for them so that they can catch something that's happening in the field sooner. And our customers can also get um, remediation quicker than they would normally be able to. And so, you know, you, it reduces the amount of money you have to set aside. It reduces your long-term risk, and it, eff- it effectively makes these projects more bankable. So, at the end of the day, it all comes back to increasing the rate of return for these solar investments. And in terms of the seed round, you mentioned you doing everything prior to the seed, but with the seed capital, you're able to make some hires. Who were those first hires? In terms of you know what what function did you hire for? And looking back, do you think those were the right hires? Yeah. So. Um, we one of the first things we um, we thought about was, you know, increasing 
you know, our software engineering horsepower. Um, and so, you know, we had um, we had a couple experienced tires, but some of our best tires were actually interns that had worked with Raptor Maps. And, you know, we knew we were probably a year out from even being in a position to make them an offer. So that worked out pretty well. Um, and so, yeah, that's uh, our intern program. And, and that's been a huge tradition for Raptor Maps and, and continued today. So a lot of our company is actually former interns. The second is if you look at our leadership team, um, you know, we realize that, for example, you know, operations and customer support, customer success, especially as a tech company, especially as under as engineers, you don't realize just how important that is. And 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 so that that was something that we came to realize was was actually a huge asset for Raptor Maps, and we really wanted to put someone um, strong in that position, uh, and we did. It was awesome. She actually, our, our head of operations, um, we had initially interviewed her a, a couple of years back. The timing didn't work out, and then we're like, well, now we have, you know, that was a little bit of a different role, and we're like, all right, now we have the perfect position. We have the resource. Call her back. <laughs> so, nice. Um, nice. yeah, yeah, yeah. So, no, it was, it was good. I think, um you know, I guess if I were to summarize, it's it's people that we have built longer term relationships with that we were able to find. You know, the timing was right, the role was right, as opposed to okay, we've got all these open roles, let's go take a shotgun approach. Mm-hmm. And so then, just a year and a half later, November of 2020, you raised a five million Series A led by Blue Bear. Um, along with Data Point Capital and Buoyant Ventures, and then other participants, uh, Congruent, us at Powerhouse Ventures, uh, the Massachusetts Clean Energy Center, along with Y Combinator. So you obviously closed that A successfully, but you started to raise in February of 2020, right ahead of COVID. Tell me about that. Yeah, that was, um, you know, any founder knows that companies have these extreme ups and downs, right? Um, And so... That's just, that just comes with the territory, and you have to be pretty even keel. I think that was one where, um, at least for me and a lot of other people, were like, this is different. This isn't your normal down. This is um, existential. Mm-hmm. Um, How close were you to running out of capital, like at its worst point? Yeah, so we had, you know, a typical fundraise, you know, takes on the order of months, maybe call it, you want to allocate, you know, maybe six months or, or so. But the challenge was, that exactly as you said, we started in February of 2020. And so, you know, by the time things started opening back up again, people were making investments outside of, you know, not just kind of triaging their own portfolios. That was about six months later. (laughs) So, yeah, you can imagine that by then, um, you know, you had taken this process that could have been relatively comfortable. And now you're looking at weeks, um, you know, to get it done in that that is extremely scary um, as a founder. Mm. What did you do? Was it weeks for you? And and what was it like in that time? What did you do to keep going? Yeah. So it comes down to, you know, especially during COVID, um, it would have been very easy to say, hey, people are are really backing off on investing. So why even bother setting up all these calls? Why bother trying really, really hard, right? I mean, you're making, you know, you've got, hundreds of people, you're really calling in all your favors when it comes to your existing investors and your network to connect with others. And and it's easy to be like, well, what is, what is it all for? Because I know, I know how all these conversations are going to go. <laughs> because again, everyone was like, well, we don't, we have no idea what the, you know, what, what the future looks like. We, we can't really make investments right now or it's, it's tough for us or, or whatever. 
But where I think that tenacity really paid off was that as things started opening back up and the world started coming back to some semblance of normal, even though we were all working from home, you know, people remember it's not like they just forgot about those past months of interaction. They they did remember like, hey, I, I saw this. I really not only liked the story, but they realized that, you know, because what we were doing was so foundational to the solar industry, we were relatively unaffected and actually we were growing significantly. And so that enabled us to really accelerate that process towards the end. So yeah, it's, uh, I guess the lesson there is definitely, we, we didn't know, right? It could have gone another several months, but you have to try. Um, and that certainly paid off for us. I'm happy you did. Um, and how many people did you have on the team at the time? This is between the seed and ahead of raising the A. Yeah, at that time, we probably had maybe 20, 25 people. And at any point, did you start to think about or have a plan for layoffs or? Yeah, so um, we did make some some adjustments on the team, um, you know, and, and so nothing, I wouldn't call it kind of a anything too drastic, but we certainly had to be really honest about you know what is our situation? What is our what does our runway look like? Um, you know, and really put the team above everything else. And so, um, we certainly made you know a couple of hard decisions in terms of personnel, but also um, our team really came through because we froze or, or you know kind of what our our hiring plan right. So we made maybe one or two critical hires, but we really try to keep it as conservative as possible because again it's you're planning for this like unknown and if you don't know where that light is at the end of the tunnel you just have to stretch it as far as possible so yeah i think like many companies during that time um you know you're certainly looking at all all contingencies because if not doing so is it's just irresponsible as a founder yeah agreed agreed um and then after you closed the a what were you able to achieve in terms of team growth tech development customer traction yeah, so after the A, that's really what set us on the path to where we are today. If you look at you know our our coverage in terms of our our footprint, right? Seventy five gigawatts. We're live in in forty five countries. You know we can create a digital twin of a of a PV system in in minutes, right? So, um, and we were able to um, increase our sales team uh, and really increase the amount of reach that um, that we had. So, yeah, that was that really took us from. Okay, you know Raptor Maps. We know this company for inspections. It's delivered through some really cool software. To Raptor Maps, you know they are building software that enables me to manage the lifecycle from when the system's designed, and you know we have the notice to proceed all the way through the end of life, and really being seen as that type of company and delivering on that that promise. Mm. How was it making that? Ex- it wasn't a pivot, but it was an expansion. I know oftentimes companies get pigeonholed into whatever they were originally doing. And it's really hard for their customers or their potential investors to understand what they're doing now. What was that like for you to to expand beyond the original benefit, which was focused mostly on solar O&M operations and maintenance? Yeah. So it's really easy to do one-to-one. So if you're sitting down with you know a customer or someone that knows you really well, um, you know they're you know they get it, or or you're even showing them on their own assets, you know what what they could be doing, and they're like, oh, it, it totally clicks for them. It's really hard to do at scale um, because people you have a certain reputation as a company, and you can say and explain 
things, but you know, that's that's kind of a one-way, it's one-way communication, right? And so that's something that we realized um, and even now is taking considerable and, and the right type of investment that we kind of took for granted before, which is like, you know, Raptor Maps, we have a fantastic reputation in the solar industry, but you know, for people to truly understand, like sometimes I was just on a call yesterday with a a major IPP and we were showing them capabilities that we'd had for the past year. And they're like, this is this is awesome. I think the, the phrase they use was kick ass. <laughs> and on one hand, I was like, I'm I'm glad you think it's kick ass. And on the other hand, I'm like, how'd you not know we did this? <laughs> so, yeah. So. Yeah. So you started Raptor Map seven years ago in 2015. Earlier this April, you raised a 22 million Series B led by the Canadian private investment firm MKB with participation from Microsoft's Climate Innovation Fund, Blue Bear, DNV, Buoyant, Congruent, Datapoint Capital, Anji New Energy Ventures. So total capital raised 27 million. When you reflect on fundraising so far, what have you learned and what advice would you give to other founders that are somewhere in the journey from seed to you know pre-Series B? Yeah, the biggest lesson for me with fundraising is is that it is it's all about the quality of not just the teams that you raise from, but even the individual investors. Um, one of the things that's really exciting for me and and why I'm just so proud of the team that we've put together is they really share our mission. And it's one thing to share your mission. It's another thing to be in a position to actually help the company and and do so. So, you know, for example, MKB, their pedigree is actually in utility-scale solar development in Canada. So they really understand the space. They have a demonstrated history of making, you know, investments in that space. If you look at Microsoft, you know, we were working directly with their climate team, directly with the folks that put together, you know, their sustainability reports and are actually driving extremely meaningful policy for Microsoft that, you know, the rest of the tech industry is is emulating when it comes to being very climate forward. And then, of course, you know, Powerhouse is a great example there. Yeah. (laughs) Um, (laughs) You know, I I, I think the first time, it wasn't even a question the first time we spoke of, is there alignment here? And, and, you know, other groups that you had alluded to, like, um, like Blue Bear and and Boyan and Congruent and several others, um, you know, they really understand both what we're trying to do, um, but also, you know, practically, what does it take to build a successful business in the climate space? Because you don't get a pass for being a, a climate tech company. There's no, you know, there's no, uh, oh, well, you're climate tech. Yeah, I guess your metrics don't matter. I'm just happy that you're doing something good for the world. You, you, the bar is even higher for us. Um, and so you also need investors that truly understand that um, and are willing to really work with you and, you um, kick down doors for you. Mm. <laughs> well said. So since 2015, Raptor Maps has made a name for itself in the solar industry. And some of your customers like Madison Energy Investments now require solar construction companies to use Raptor Maps at commissioning. And they recommend O&M teams to use Raptor Maps. Um, other customers like solar manufacturers that you mentioned are using Raptor Maps to create documentation for warranty claims. What have you learned about relationship building as it relates to customer development? What advice would you give to other founders based on your experience establishing these relationships with these big players? Yeah, I think one of the biggest things, everyone knows that, you know, especially, I love to say that solar is like a big, small industry. What I mean by that is the the reach is fantastic. He's huge, right? It, it, in terms of scale, in terms of 
you know, it's a million dollars just to build one megawatt, five acres worth of solar. That is a lot of money. Um, but at the same time, you've got, you know, not that many people actually that are um, that are at these companies that are, you know, some of the brightest people that really want to make a difference. Um, you mentioned, you know, Madison, uh, that's a great example where, you know, we have a great relationship with with that company and they're very forward thinking. But even within that, we have a fantastic relationship with, um, you know, their director of asset management who I actually interviewed the other day because she was developing around our API to um, basically automate a lot of her workflows for like LP reporting. And without us having that like one-to-one relationship, we wouldn't even have a good understanding of that exact use case and the benefit that they're getting out of it. And, and you know, that's that's helpful for us to make our product even better for them. So, yeah, those individual relationships are key. And again, I'd say if you look at one of the challenges of, you know, if you look at a typical tech company or, or you look at, you know, call something like Slack or whatever, it's like, okay, yeah, that, you know, they, they don't need to, it's, it's 100% organic. And we have a huge amount of organic growth in that for every solar farm in our system, people are adding 30 additional users, which is fantastic. But that's still no substitute for them hearing directly from someone at Raptor Maps and speaking to them and pointing them to resources and answering their questions and all of that. So, yeah. And those customers that you mentioned, and back to some of your earliest customers like in El Green Power and Cypress Creek, what are they paying for? Like, what's the business model of Raptor Maps today? And is it the same as when you created the company? Yes. So, our business model has always been about um, scaling in terms of, uh, you know, assets under management. So, everything is normalized by assets under management. um, And that's the the almighty megawatt, right? So, um, So, our model has always been to think about the value that we're providing um, for our customers and make sure that they understand it in the context of, of their metrics. Now, where it's how it's changed is that we've gone from, you know, these software deliverables that are kind of per megawatt, but at, at the time of need, to really focusing on this platform approach where we do have continuous engagement. And now we actually just had a press release where you know, we're working with some of the largest um, SCADA companies, so the companies that process that sensor data on site, where we're actually combining that sensor data with, you know, the inspection data, with, you know, the the historical records of how that solar farm has been maintained, as well as what people are actually doing on site today um, to create this holistic view. And as you can imagine, that drives continuous engagement. So it's really going from you know, these inspections to being a platform that people are engaging with every single day. And so your customers are increasingly taking a deeper look at their portfolios and their supply chains in particular. And what ways is Raptor Maps enabling this deeper look? Yes. Yeah, so especially for those um, of you in the U.S., you're, you're aware that, you know, we have a module supply chain crunch. Um, you know, it's really hard to get modules. Uh, and at the same time, you know, we have very strict standards because we want to make sure that the supply chain for solar is ethical, right? And so you do have laws uh, like withhold release orders and the UFLPA and, and others that are aimed at making sure that the, the supply chain is is transparent and traceable. And so one of the things that we saw was there was this huge disconnect between you've got all this testing that's hap- happening at the factory level and then there's no visibility after kind of that field installation. And we said, well, 
what if you could incentivize every single party to be transparent in their supply chain and traceable with their supply chain and have it so that think about like a like the carfax or you know that you know some some system single source of truth on that and so what we're doing now is that we have um, within our mobile application as solar panels are being installed you know those crews are scanning those individual serial numbers we're checking that against the supply chain documentation and we're enabling our customers to prove you know this is the factory that it came from this is how it got here this is the moment that it was installed and you know this is great for the manufacturers themselves because now they're able to directly trace how that module is performing throughout the lifetime of the solar farm and it's great for the owners and operators because they don't have to go back and collect that data when there's an issue so you know we find these really critical points of friction that can solve all of these different issues at once. And that's a really good microcosm of the power of, of Raptor Maps. And this ties into the Inflation Reduction Act and some of its mandates and benefits. What is the impact of IRA on Raptor Maps? Yeah, there are a few things. One is that, you know, within our software, we're making it a lot easier for people to, you know, manage their manage their workforce, right? Where do they need to go? What did they do? What was the financial impact of, of what they did? And, you know, with IRA, um, we're going to need four times as many solar professionals as we have today. Um, and with some of the prevailing wage, um, you know, legislation, we have to be as efficient with, you know, our skilled laborers as, as we possibly can. These are really smart people. Their time shouldn't be wasted. Um, and so we need to figure out a way to, to deploy them intelligently. And so that's a huge part of where Raptor Maps comes in. There's obviously a lot around traceability um, as well as safe harboring, right? So enabling our customers to, you know, scan those modules in and provide, instead of providing pages and pages of unverified information to the IRS, they can literally provide that system of record that is auditable, that is queryable. And so if you just look at, and finally, it's just scale, right? So you've got... Um, you know, we're going to be deploying massive amounts of solar. We have all of these different friction points that are blockers to to scaling the solar industry. And so fundamentally, you need that that platform. So, yeah, Ira, you know, all of all of that come together is it just really underscores the why around Raptor Maps. And, you know, I think the timing is is really good because just when our customers are hitting those pain points, you know, we're really helping them work through it. Somewhere along the way, and I don't know when, so you can tell me when, you decided to make some parts of Raptor Maps technology open source, mainly the data capture methodologies and some machine learning data. When did you do it? Why did you do it? What do you think the benefits will be? Yeah, so we we made this decision really early on. We, you know, we took a really hard look at, um, and I think this theme comes through with a lot of guests you've had on the podcast, which is focus, right? What are we really good at? What is the thing that we is really unique to Raptor Maps? And then what do we just want to enable everyone in the industry to do and do properly? And so, you know, it's that you know we wanted to make it so that when data is coming into the platform, you know, it's standardized, it's high quality, everyone's on the same page, it's audible. And, and in order to do that, you can't keep all those procedures and standards and all that behind behind lock and key. You really have to push that forward. At the same time, so that's. You know, that's the reason behind open sourcing the data capture methodologies. We also open sourced a lot of training data for our machine learning algorithms. So, for example, we had a 
paper at the International uh, Conference on Learning and Rep- Representation, as well as a whole GitHub repo uh, where people can look at different types of defects and actually train models around those. And that's because we really see Raptor Maps as a platform not only for you know users today to log in kind of through you know our mobile application or, or the desktop, but really p- bringing it full circle, talking about solar software. You know, we see Raptor Maps as a platform that software developers are developing on top of, um, which is, you know, that ecosystem is just burgeoning. Um, you're going to see that really, really taking off. And so, you know, that is how it's done in software. This is the documentation. I want to pull that API. I want to start using it, developing around it, customizing it, all of that. And so, you know, that just came very naturally to us because that's how we use software as a company. And so, you know, if you look at AWS, for example, um, you know, if you want to go hit an AWS endpoint and do something or spin up a cluster or whatever, all of the documentation on how to do that is there and you're already off to the races. Well said. Reflecting on the company, how many people on the team today and what have you learned about hiring since you started building the team? Yeah, we have 60 people on the team today and hiring is so, so, so important to get right. It is, and and you never know. Like <laughs> it's easy to say that, um, but you know it's it's much harder to put in practice. And I don't think any company gets it right one hundred percent of the time. But for us, I feel like we we really have nailed it. And the reason I feel like that is that you know we have a, a fantastic, passionate team, and and our culture is probably one of the biggest um, assets at Raptor Maps because at a certain point. You know, of course, there's there's certain things that grow beyond the founders or even the leadership team, and you're just counting on on the actual fabric and the north star um, of the company and the and the quality of people that you've brought together to to really push the company forward. And so, what you know, where that practically translates for us is that um, you know, I think you'll see a lot of people that are passionate about getting into the climate tech space, and that is. That is awesome. And so we don't necessarily want to, it would be very easy to say, well, you know, you don't have a background in solar or something like that. But instead, people may have, you know, a a completely different background, but something in their past will really prove that, you know, they're not just working on climate because it's it's cool or the next big thing, but they truly have a burning desire for it. And I think, you know, we definitely lean towards giving you know, those people equal weight to people that might have more experience specifically in the solar industry. And so, you know, I think that's how you put together a really diverse team um, and a really effective team. Have you hired anyone from Twitter yet? We have not hired, to my knowledge, we have. But actually, before <laughs> kind of, you know, the uh, the tech slowdown, um, we already had, we have people that have come from you know, Facebook, um, MongoDB, AlliBand, like you name, you name the big tech company, like we already had people coming over from there. And the, and the reason for that was, you know, and, and interestingly enough, some of these people were working on climate initiatives at those tech companies. So, you know, but they realized this, this really comes down to, am I truly making a difference every single day? Like you can label something climate, but is it truly, and is that having an outsized impact? And I think, you know, for Raptor Maps in particular, we're all about the outsized impact. And I think, you know, that it's just going to attract those types of people that don't want to pay lip service to making a difference, but just want to do it. Hmm. If you could go back in time seven years ago to when you're starting Raptor Maps, what would you tell yourself? Think more carefully about tech debt. Um, 
because in the beginning, it is a little bit, is a lot easier actually to maybe slow down for a week or two and build that underlying system, you know, in a, in a way that you know is going to scale as opposed to having to go back a year later when you have a much bigger team and, and it just is much costlier. So that doesn't mean you have to build the Ferrari before you even have product market fit. But it does mean that you should think about, you know, the abstraction layer behind what you're building um, and be a little bit more deliberate about that um, in the early days. I think that, you know, obviously that's a very like software answer, but I think that also holds in general for a company is, is you know, taking a step back from the exact product that, and thinking a little bit more about, you know, about mission and purpose and the suite of products and services that you want to provide in the next year or two. Mm-hmm. What's been the single worst day at Raptor Maps? Oof, the single worst day is when we had a customer that there was there was some glitch in our process, and this was early uh, early on in, uh, in the days of Raptor Maps, and we found out retroactively that we had a customer that was out in the field and just like baking in the sun, 110 degrees, like trying to you know, use our, our product in the mobile application and, and not finding what they needed to find. And on our end, it was as simple as just like a really quick like patch, like it took two seconds. And so I, I, was, I just felt so bad because I, I was thinking like, man, if we knew that at the beginning of the day, we could have saved this person an entire day of probably what was not one of the greatest days of their life either. And so, you know, that really... I think customer empathy, most founders have that. Um, but that also means that when you have those types of scenarios, it it hits you a lot harder. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. What's been the single best day? You you would think it would be the day funding comes through on like a funding round and you, you see the money in your bank account. But I think at least for my co-founder and I, and, and we've kind of like instilled this in the company as well, we're already thinking about the next thing. We're like, okay, this means that the bar is higher. We got to like be proud. Like we want to celebrate wins, but we're really just thinking about, about what comes next. Um, but I think some of the best days are, you know, when we bring our team together and the team collectively can reflect on wins, like, hey, we've launched the software. We had these awesome press releases. We hit this milestone in terms of megawatts under management. You, you see that other people on your team are like, you know, they, they know what their metrics are. They're hitting their goals. They're happy. They're like that, that really good feeling. That's what really gets me excited um, as opposed to maybe any one specific company goal. Because at some point, right, the, comp- the company is the people. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. How has your leadership style changed, if it's changed, since you started the company? Yeah, so... It, it definitely has. My leadership style is is a couple things. I'd say pretty hands on. Um, like you know, if we're if we're doing anything that's like customer facing or something like that, like I want I want to be a part of it. Like every every single word or phrase or or whatever. And like that's that's not very practical. Um, I think I have a pretty high tolerance for changing plans very quickly. You know, and I think in the early days of a startup, that's exactly what you need. But, you know, you also got to remember that as the team gets bigger, and I, I still think that's one of the strongest things that you know, it's an advantage a startup has. But some of that change management is really important in understanding, you know, what that means and, and looks like um, and actually implementing that so that people don't feel 
you know, blindsided by decisions. I think that's that's really important. That's something I've had to learn to do. And then I think the final one is just signal, you know, signal to noise type thing where, for example, I love being zero inbox. I'm like, all right, I'm 100% on top of it. Like, you know, I know. <laughs> and that almost, um, that's really hard to do um, because there will be times where through your responsibilities as a leader, you know, things are going to pile up and then you might not even have time to get, you know, fully caught up in the way that you want to. And so you have to get a lot better at picking out what is really, really important and and what's not and what can delegate and all that. And I think, you know, evolving, um, you know, that that's something I've had to evolve and really, really work on. So, yeah. Good, good learnings, good growth. Um, can you speak to your experience as an Indian American man leading a company in an industry that is majority white and male, but certainly has really solid representation within the Asian and South Asian community? Yeah, so what I really like about... Um, about solar in particular is that so I was actually at a conference. Um, it's it's the big module manufacturer conference, and they typically hold it every year in, in Southeast Asia. And, and this year they actually held it in uh, in Napa Valley, so um, you know relatively local. And it was just incredible when we were looking at all the statistics and where these companies are based and the you know the makeup of their engineering and leadership teams. There's a quite a bit of diversity in the solar industry, and I think. I think that's because solar inherently is a global industry. Um, you know, tech is too, but obviously you've got this extreme concentration right in, in Silicon Valley. But solar is, is truly global. And I think the second thing is that, you know, it's it's still fairly nascent. Like we're at the tip of the iceberg, um, literally, right? If you think about an iceberg being 90% underwater, <laughs> we have about 90% more solar we have to deploy in the next decade, decade and a half to even come close to hitting our climate goals. So, um and but what that means is that you know if you look at the trends today and and the emphasis on representation um, across different backgrounds, the solar industry tends to not have as much of that baggage. Like it can, it, I, I think it's just on a much better path. And and I think from my position, you know, I can be a huge part of that influence. I know when we're building out Raptor Maps and and our team, um, you know, we think about bringing in people from different backgrounds. And that kind of goes back to what I said earlier. You know, it doesn't, they don't have to have walked this like traditional path. So yeah, it's definitely given me some some perspective, but also, yeah, it's tremendous, the opportunity. I mean, there's a reason people from all over the world want to build companies in the US. <laughs> so would not want to build a company anywhere else. In terms of your personal life, you are founder, CEO, but also a partner to your wife, who I have not met, but she sounds awesome. Uh, what has it been like being all three of those things, founder, CEO, and, and partner to her at the same time? Yeah, she's she's kind of a badass. Um, she, <laughs> um, you know, we met before when we were an undergrad, right? Um, so it's been interesting to, to really support each other. And so um, since then, she actually... Uh, became a doctor and is um, is in the the Air Force and she was stationed um, during COVID um, overseas in Korea for a year, um, running one of the ERs out there. Um, now she's a faculty physician at one of the major residency programs. So um, no, it's been uh, it's been really interesting because if you think about you know just the the extreme chaos of a startup and then you've got you know kind of like the extreme let's say rigidity of the military but also some chaos <laughs> you know I think they got to be pretty flexible too if you look at kind of everything that's happening um, it's just been really interesting to to support each other and, and compare notes but uh, there's a reason I'm out in the 
I'm out in the Bay Area, right? At, I mean, obviously, great for a startup, but I love Boston, but you got to gotta make some compromises. And you know, she's been so supportive over more than a decade. So figured it's time to, uh, <laughs> time to let her choose where to live for a while. Sounds good. What will the future of the PV solar lifecycle management space look like in a decade? It's going to look and feel like cloud computing does today. And what I mean by that is, you know, if you were a lot of these processes, they're they're not standardized. They're very manual. You have people that are repeating work. Um, and if you think about cloud computing, you know, it is completely standardized. You've got clusters, you've got storage, you've got these canonical elements. They're they're well defined. And people that want to go and make a difference, let's say you want to build the next big tech company or website or whatever, you've already got you know, 90% of that work or that infrastructure has already been built for you where you can immediately be off to the races. And so I think, you know, today, if you're a company that wants to, or a person that wants to get spun up in the solar industry, maybe you want to deploy your, you know, your, your robot, or maybe you recently purchased a portfolio as part of a transaction, or maybe you want to understand, you know, how well your investment is doing and what you can do to make it better. All of that is going to be done in a very standardized, very automated way, and that's what our software is going to enable. If Raptor Maps succeeds, what will the company look like in a decade? If we succeed, we, we're going to be one of those companies that I'd say 80% of the people in the solar industry are using us and may not even know they're using us. Um, there are so many of these massive companies that um, you know, run a lot of the the core infrastructure of things that we take for granted. You know, we talked about what that looks like in tech, but uh, another example I like to use is, um, you know, when you go to the grocery store, right? You see, especially Whole Foods or something like that, right? Everything's like perfectly lined up. It's it's bright and shiny, and you got more than you could ever want on the shelves. And how you know there are there's so much that it took in terms of infrastructure and logistics to make that happen that maybe the consumer never sees. But if those companies didn't exist, the whole system would fall apart. And so I think that's a, that's how I think about Raptor Maps and really kind of how fundamental um, we are today and, and will be in the future when it comes to solar. We're going to close with our high voltage round. Quick questions, quick answers, quick meaning, a couple words or a couple seconds. Starting with, Nikhil, if you were an animal, what animal would you be and why? <laughs> You, you got to be a raptor. I mean, that just, uh, that just makes <laughs> sense. Um, you know, it's funny. We name all of our technology, like our, our, our laptops and things after different types of raptors, like ospreys, eagles, hawks. But um, but I also think of like, you know, the OG raptors, like the velociraptors. And, you know, if, for those of you who remember classic Jurassic Park, you know, any one of them, they're kind of like, yeah, they're ferocious, but they're kind of tiny, but they're very smart. They work extremely well together and they can get, get stuff done. <laughs> love it. Love it. What inspires you? Um, a lot of things, but you know, one of, I think if I were to distill it down to, to maybe something emblematic, uh, when my wife was overseas in Korea, she adopted this really old dog. Um, you know, she was, she wasn't doing too well. And this dog turned out to be just like tough as nails. We, we adopted her, put her on a 15-hour flight in the cargo hold to Boston. I drove her 3,000 miles across the country. She was in horrible conditions, probably had every reason to hate humans. And yet she was like, you know what? I'm going to survive. And like, I'm going to, I'm basically going to learn to, to kind of like, 
I'm tough. I forgot my past. This I'm living in the present. And, you know, I think that that's been a huge inspiration. Just like that tenacity, um, even in an animal, has been really inspirational to me. Hmm, I love that. What's her name? Her name's Yongja. Yongja. If you had to start a new career tomorrow, let's say not in solar, what would it be? Ooh, I think travel blogger. Um, and not like <laughs> not like Instagram type, but I really like those stumbling across those like blogs. They almost look like they're in like written in GeoCities and like, you know, people are just putting their adventure they're like adventures out there. They don't care if the pictures are good or not. And it's just like their one specific narrative on how they got to really discover a place. And I think I think that's awesome. I actually use those more than I use any sort of like other resource when I'm thinking about how I want to go explore a new destination. And I think those are, those are some of the most like underrated people. Hmm. Other than yourself, to whom do you attribute your success? Yeah. So success in the professional setting with Raptor Maps, um, you know, my co-founder, Eddie, he, he does not talk about tenacity too. He does not give up. (laughs) Like he will, um, you know, and, and, you know, he'll, you might hit a roadblock. He'll come up with three technical solutions in the next 10 minutes. You you need to make magic happen. He will stay up all night and single-handedly code, you know, a mobile application and, and launch it. So like, yeah, that level of tenacity and and just intellectual horsepower, I think is extremely rare. And so would not be where we are today without him. Tell me about a specific time that you failed. Yeah, so... You know, part of our story is is leaving, you know, leaving the PhD program at MIT right before, um, really within a year of of getting that degree. Um, but you know, it's 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 doubly hard because I remember when I was in high school, I always wanted to. That was like my I, where I wanted to go. As I applied early, I was like, I thought I did everything right, and I didn't get in. Like I totally, I, I took that as a failure. And so, if you would have told me, you know. A decade later that, you know, I'd be leaving this this program I got into, I'd be like, no, you're crazy, stop. <laughs> Don't you remember how much it sucked when you failed that first time? <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. But. What lesson has taken the longest to learn? I think for me, it's... Um, it's really sitting... You know, I'm, I'm very much like a go-go-go type person. Um, and really sitting down and being deliberate and planning a little bit longer term when it comes, you know, when you have a company, you know, this large and you're trying to do things this big, that has taken a long, that is something that's learned. It's easy to know that you need to do those types of things, but to put into practice and, you know, change kind of, you know, some of your, some of your impulses, like that's pretty hard. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. What's the best investment you've ever made? (laughs) Ford stock. No joke. So I was interning <laughs> at Ford uh, in their safety division in 2008. Um, and I hope this isn't, I don't, this isn't insider trading, though. That, <laughs> I hope not. But all I remember was like the quality of people there was, they, they were just so tenacious and people were talking about the collapse of all these industries and whatever. And I remember looking at the chart and I was like, oh man, people think this company is going to go bankrupt and need a bailout, whatever. But I was like, but if they don't, this could be a pretty good investment. Yeah, so I took, I didn't have that much money at the time, but put a few, you know, bought a few thousand shares and uh, definitely the best investment in terms of just straight ROI I've ever made. Love it. What's something that you thought was true that you no longer believe? It's like the, the field of dreams. If you build it, they will come. Um, you know, I used to think like, okay, if you've got the best mousetrap or, or whatever, 
um, then that's it. Game over. You, 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 you're going to win. And I, that's just not true. Like nothing sells itself, no matter how good your product is, no matter how, how powerful it is. You have to be able to really get in front of the right people and really tell a cohesive story. And I think that's something that, yeah, I used to believe it was just all about the product and that's it. Um, and, you know, there's, there's, there's more. What is your worst trait? My worst trait. <laughs> um, I get excited really easily. And then I, you know, I'll, I'll be like, I might still have, there are five other things that are probably equally important that still need to get done. And so, <laughs> you know, I definitely count on, um, and this is something where, you know, you just have to be really honest with your team. Like, hey, if, if I'm, I always say, use the phrase tossing a wrench into the works, like say, hey, if I'm just like tossing a wrench into the works, just, just tell me. Sometimes there might be good reason. And, uh, but if, if we're really getting derailed here, like it's okay to, it's okay to bring it back. <laughs> so. If you could change one thing about the world, what would it be? I think in climate, especially we're seeing this, is that, you know, the people who make decisions should be the ones that have to live with the consequences of those. It's it's almost like the the it comes down to incentives. And I think the problem is, especially with, you know, the younger generations, is we're seeing people kind of putting us on these paths that are really, really difficult to undo that are not going to have to suffer the consequences of that. Um, and so, yeah, I would definitely change that. <laughs> hmm. If there was just one person who was going to hear this podcast, who would you want it to be? Um, probably my wife. I think uh, for the same reason I read her you know, journal articles, and I may not necessarily understand everything in them, but I think, uh, yeah, I'd want to instill that same feeling in her. Oh, that's nice. What is your best quality? Best quality is that I really try to get to know what motivates people and what makes them what makes them tick. Um, I wouldn't say so. So it's interesting because it's like empathy is is doing that, like the the fact that you've done that successfully. I think that's everyone wants to get there, but that's really hard. But I think it's really how much you try, how how deep you dig. And then empathy kind of comes comes from that. And so, yeah, for me, I like to think, you know, more than the average person that that I really do care about, you know, what's motivating people and and just taking an interest in in their lives. And um, at the end of the day, right, it's 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 a it's all humans that we're dealing with, whether it's your own employees, customers, everyone. And you know, it's if you don't understand where they're coming from, it's they're not gonna have fun, you're not gonna be successful. Finish these sentences for me. Companies fail because they are not default alive. It's <laughs> a great answer. If you really knew me, you would know. Ah, oh, you would know that I have very strong opinions on the New York Times Daily Crossword, depending on the theme of the day. Hmm. Okay. Okay. Are those feelings generally positive or negative? It depends on uh, it depends on the puzzle. Sometimes they're like really interesting. It all comes together. You're like, oh man, that was really clever. Sometimes you're like, Will, Will Shorts, you should have caught this. I know you guys took some <laughs> shortcuts this week. So. Strong feelings indeed. Success <laughs> is. Um, I think it's celebrating, being able to look back and be satisfied and celebrating you know the the wins or whatever whatever's like important to you that whatever you're proud of without getting 
full of yourself or without, you know, thinking about, well, what's the next thing? So I guess it's, it's doing that without it clouding your judgment or, or, um, or losing the ability to just be critical of yourself. If I could have done one thing differently, I would have. Hmm. That's a good question. Um, probably start a Raptor map sooner. <laughs> hmm. Leave the PhD program sooner. I think if the if the outcome's going to be the same, you may as well have put more investment in, in, in this upfront. So, if the world knew me for one thing, it would be it would be how I made them feel. Um, you know, I know that's really cliche, but there's the whole like you know people don't remember exactly, and it comes back to what I was talking about with with engineering earlier. It's like you know it's less about the individual facts and things like that, and more about you know. Did he inspire me to do something or do I like being around this person or, or whatever? So I think, I think they'll remember my aura. <laughs> I'm most proud of. The people in my life, I think. And when I look at, so for example, um, you know, I have a really tight-knit group of friends. And when I look at them, both how they are as people, um, you know, what they've accomplished professionally and personally, you know, personally and and just, you know, just what incredible friends like they are. And, and this translates to, to all the others in my life as well. I think, you know, just, just surrounding, I'm, I'm really proud of the fact that, you know, these are people that, um, you know, I want to be around them. They want to be around me. And we've developed those deep relationships. So, yeah, um, huge, huge shout out because I think they, the, our friends, our family gets a lot of credit, right? Our employees get a lot of credit. Um, but I think sometimes we don't give our, like, close friends as much credit as they deserve as well. Last question, to build a successful startup, what it takes is? Grit. You can't do it. <laughs> Grit and resilience. Um, and that's something that's just ingrained in you, ingrained in your culture. Um, can't, can't do it without that. Hmm. Nikhil, this has been so much fun. I'm so grateful to have met you way back when and to have the opportunity to back you and back Raptor Maps and you know support you however we can. It's been such an awesome journey already, and I can't wait to see what you do. Awesome. Well, it's great. Uh, thank you for having me on your show. And yeah, looking forward to, to the next decade of Raptor Maps. Nikhil Vadovkar is the CEO and co-founder of Raptor Maps. Join us for new stories each month of founders who are building our climate-positive future, their upbringings, their risks, their failures, and their breakthroughs that are transforming our world. I want to thank our exclusive What It Takes sponsor, Google Nest Renew. I'd also like to thank What It Takes listener Already Taken, who in their review of the show said, What It Takes manages to get such honesty and vulnerability from their guests. These are the most impressive entrepreneurs in clean energy. What It Takes is produced by Powerhouse and Powerhouse Ventures with support from PostScript Media. Powerhouse is an innovation firm that works with leading global corporations and investors to help them find, partner with, invest in, and acquire the most innovative startups in clean energy, mobility, and climate. Our fund, Powerhouse Ventures, backs entrepreneurs building the digital infrastructure for rapid decarbonization. You can learn more at powerhouse.fund, that's powerhouse.fund, and follow us on Twitter at joinpowerhouse, and you can follow me at Emily Kirsch. Whether you're a first-time or long-time listener, you can now support the making of this show with a donation via our site, powerhouse.fund forward slash what it takes, or by giving us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts. We really appreciate all of them and read some of them on the show. And if you have a friend or colleague who you think might like this episode, please send them the link. 
Our executive editor is Stephen Lacey. Dalvin Abouaji, Ann Bailey, and Sam Wolforth helped produce this episode. Sean Marquand and Greg Villefranc are our engineers. I'm Emily Kirsch. This is What It Takes. <laughs>